University, the voice of Reichman University. From Kube to Knedelach and everything in between with Sabrina Shantz. Hello and welcome to Kola Safdot. I'm Sabrina Shantz, your host today. And with me in the studio, I have the wonderful Michelle Hirschfield, who's come uh, to be a guest on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, and I start by, by explaining kind of what my mission is with this show. And I really believe that our grandmothers uh, have such wisdom and kindness and recipes and good ideas and good advice. And I really want to bring their voices, your voice to the forefront. So uh, I hope in today's interview, you'll be able to share some of your life experiences with us. Uh, and I hope that our listeners enjoy uh, hearing what you have to say. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my first question to you is, if we go way back to your childhood, um, tell us a bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and, and maybe tell us about your first kind of food memory. What was something that, that you remember be having your mom or grandma cook for you and, and a nice experience that you remember? Fine. Okay, well, um, I guess I'd better give my age if I meant to be a grandma. <laughs> so I'm 72, but I don't feel it. Yet when I looked at one of my grandmothers at 70, I thought she was absolutely ancient. <laughs> you don't <laughs> you know? look it. You don't look it. Well, she... So my background is um, I was brought up in England. I was brought up actually in the city of Liverpool. Mm -hmm. My father was Liverpudley and my mother actually was from London. And there was 14 years age difference between them. Wow. Now, my father was in Liverpool because basically his parents had come from Russia, Poland, depending on the day and which army was occupying the country, mm -hmm. and they had come to England. They had come to Liverpool, um, and they were on the boat. I mean, they had never... Well, they came from separate towns, and actually they met in Liverpool. Um, my grandmother was a very... Um, dynamic woman. Her elder sister had already come over in about 1890 and two of her brothers as well and they were establishing themselves in Liverpool and then she came to join them and later about five other of her siblings and parents came and even her grandparents. Now how did they get to Liverpool? Well most people, I mean they had never even been on a train, they'd left their little shtetl, they were from mm -hmm. um, a place, uh, well, which is now actually Belarus, it was called Shishlevich, which is near Bialystok, Grodna, and Grodna. And they had come, they came on a train, they got the, they made their way to Hamburg, they got the boat, uh, the boat to Liverpool, and as most of the Jews thought, they were then going on to America. But they had been um, tricked, and their ticket that they had purchased was only as far as Liverpool, wow. and they couldn't go any further. So that's how a lot of the Liverpool Jewish community was formed. And in fact, Liverpool is made up of various little shtetls from Poland and Russia. Wow. So everybody seems to be related mm -hmm. or know, they all know each other from, you know, De Haim. In fact, my grandmother, any boy I went out with had to be vetted by her because she would know the grandparents <laughs> and whether they were suitable or not, you know, for me to uh, seat date them. Um, but as I say, my grandmother was one of eight and her late husband, who, who my grandfather I never knew, was also one of eight. So we were, to start with, a very big family. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they came over. They actually set up a dairy in Liverpool because that's what they had in uh, in Poland. Wow. And this dairy was actually in the centre of town. Can you imagine cows in the centre of town of Liverpool? <laughs> and then they branched out and they. Um, my grandmother married this my grandfather who actually had settled in Leeds and he came to Liverpool and they had a grocery shop and she was very well known because she used to give people food on credit because they couldn't afford to mm -hmm. pay and she probably made more of a loss than a profit. <laughs> but her husband was quite a businessman and he started dabbling in property as did his brothers and my grandmother's brother and they sort of bought all these little houses, I can say like Coronation Street, if you know the program, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, with terraced houses, toilets outside, no bathrooms, mm -hmm. etc. Anyway, this is already in Liverpool. This is in Liverpool. And this is how they started. And Liverpool became quite a prosperous community. Although when they first came over, they had to, they went through the First World War, 1914 to 1918. Mm. And then there was the Depression in the 20s. And then again, there was the war later. My father was born in 1914. He was an only child, but he had like 40 first cousins because of all um, his parents' siblings. And again, they were very close, but the only, but the, all the parents insisted that their children be educated. And it was education, education, wow. education. And the minute my father would get his exams, he would then have to go and coach another cousin. And I can tell you, out of these 40 cousins, I think at least 30 became doctors or dentists or no accountants. My and just being an ordinary GP wasn't enough. In fact, my father was a surgeon, a general surgeon. His other cousin was an ENT. Another one wow. was something uh, orthopedic. So they were very, very ambitious for their children. And then this came down to, from my father to my generation. I just want to stop you and say it's so amazing to hear how well versed you are in your own family's history. I think it's a very Jewish thing, but it's just an important thing. We always say, you know, you have to know where you come from, etc. But not just the shtetl that your grandparents yeah. came from, but to know who they were and what they did and what was important to them. Because it's part of who you are. And it's so nice to hear you retell this. Thank you. And actually, I'll tell you a very funny thing, actually, about Liverpool Jewish community, which is also appertained to a lot of the English community. Mm -hmm. Because my grandparents came over in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, they were looked down upon by the Jews that were already in England. They were immigrants. They, you know, they were looked on as the immigrants, mm -hmm. right? And they weren't allowed to join the big shuls. It, wow! You know, it was just it was it was beneath them to have these people. So they've so in Liverpool there were lots of little shuls, stables, etc. Which, in fact, the ones that my father went to, his father, they developed into the bigger shul. Um, sort of shawl in Liverpool, although the cathedral shawl, Prince's Road, where they weren't allowed to join, is now empty because mm -hmm. it's in the wrong part of Liverpool, <laughs> you know, and people didn't want that sort of shawl. Anyway, so let's get on. So my father qualified as a surgeon. Um, World War II broke out. He signed up because they still had a lot of family in Poland, lost touch with them, wow. and obviously they were all killed in camps. Mm -hmm. And he was sent to India and Burma, in fact, and he was part of the Forgotten Army, and he was away from home for six years. Wow. He had just qualified as a surgeon. He was put in charge he would, of um, 
various hospitals. They had a hospital ship that went up and down the Irrawaddy River in Burma, picking up soldiers, fighting the Japs. He was cut off. But that's another story altogether. Mm -hmm. But all I can say is here was a Jewish guy who had hardly been outside Liverpool, who had a place at Oxford University, but whose parents were so... Um, concerned about him leaving home that he, ha- he couldn't take it. He had to go to <laughs> Liverpool University. And then 10 years later, he lands up in Burma. Wow, wow. <laughs> anyway, so... This was before you were born. This was all before I was born. So my father comes back from the war. He is introduced to my mother, as I said earlier, 14 years younger than her. She lived in London. Now, oh, I'm, I, I just go back to my grandmother's family where they were very, you know, they were... I said, well, look back on it. They were sort of old-fashioned, long skirts, only spoke Yiddish, mm-hmm. although they did learn English, etc. But amongst themselves, they only spoke Yiddish, and they were a very closed, tight family. We'd all meet Shabbos tea, and etc. My mother's family, um, her mother actually was born in England, so which is quite unusual. She mm-hmm. was from a, um, a well-to-do old English family. And my grandfather was from Germany, from Frankfurt, They met because he used to come to England on business and he went to shul. And in fact, my grandmother was the daughter of the cousin and that's how they met. Mm -hmm. So they lived in London and their life was very different to the life in Liverpool because London was far more sophisticated. Also, they were yekas. They were very smart, very cultured, whereas my Liverpool family were clever people, but of a different background. Yeah. Anyway, so mummy came to Liverpool and she found it very different. First of all, she was very young, as I said, and she had to live. Daddy being an only child and his father had died, his mother lived with us. Wow. So everybody used to say mummy was an angel. Anyway, so my childhood was very... Because she she lived with her mother-in-law. Yes, because she lived with her Mm -hmm. mother-in-law. Thankfully, we had a big house. Now, I'm the eldest of five children, Four of us were born within five years, mm-hmm. and then there was a gap between the fourth and the fifth. Okay. So we lived in a, a big house. Now, here's where food comes into it, because we had two kitchens. Wow. One was my grandmother's kitchen, and one was my mother's kitchen. That's so interesting. Do you know, I you hear a lot in, in a lot of cultures, the, the mother-in-law or, or, the, or normally maybe the, the bride moves in with her mother-in-law, that, that kind yes. of cross-generational yes. living together thing happens. And I always think that probably the biggest point of contention is the kitchen because the rest of the house can be easily shared, but a kitchen has a clear manager, owner, boss. Yeah. And is it the grandmother or is it the mother? Yeah. So that's so interesting that, that maybe there was an understanding that for this setup to work well, yes, each woman <laughs> needs their their kitchen. Yes, and um, yeah, it's true. You know, my poor father was sort of like be eating two meals because you know we, had, we didn't want to insult either of them. But um, you t- so to bring this back to food. Um, the smell of food just brings so many memories mm-hmm. to me. You know, it brings memories of my childhood, it brings memories of my married life, etc. So a routine in our house. First of all, Liverpool was a, a Jewish community of about 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. But unlike London today, you cannot buy a, a kosher, kosher food. food. Everything was made, you know. We, on a Thursday, I would come home from school late on purpose because my ga- grandmother would be cleaning the chickens. Mm. You know, you, my mother's biggest thing was that to, ca- um, that to have not have to kosher your own meat 
you know, and we yeah. never think of it now. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, Thursday there were buckets and there was what you call eggshells and feathers and I couldn't bear the smell. My grandmother throwing the innards on the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, it was awful. My mother couldn't bear it either. She'd come from London and she could buy a chicken that was already cleaned. I was I was speaking to my father-in-law on the weekend and he said he remembers that his mum would take the chicken and she would check for eggs inside Yes, that's right. Yeah, that was a big delicacy, the eggs. (laughs) We had a chicken man. I always remember Mr. Tank used to come on the Thursday morning holding the chickens by the neck and you choose which ones you wanted. Anyway, so that was sort of... My grandmother would do that sort of thing. Um, uh, But with her, I always associate Thursday. She used to make lokshan. I don't know what Hebrew word is. Noodles. Noodles. Yeah. You know, for the soup. Yeah. And it'd be rolled out very, very thin. And she would put it on a tea towel on the back of the chair to dry out. It was like a large Mm -hmm. piece of um, of dough. dough. It's like making pasta. Yeah, very thin. And I remember as a child, like, putting my fingers through it, making a hole in it, and she was going mad. And then she would roll it up into a roll, and then with this big knife, she would be chopping it very finely. Like spaghetti. But very, very fine, like Mm -hmm. vermicelli. And I always think she's going to chop her fingers. And then she would make things like mandals, big, but much bigger than what you buy today. What, What are mandals? You put in the soup. Um, croutons, like croutons, croutons. Okay, okay. yeah. So that was on a Thursday. It's also be the colours that she would bake, mm. yeast cakes she would bake, mm. kichels. What are kichels? Kichels is like a. It's made of an egg and sugar and a little bit of flour and oil, and it's it's like a, a cracker. cracker that you and and you but you put cinnamon sugar on top of it before you put it in the oven, and it, so it's slightly sweet. And it was mm-hmm. something you as well you drink have your chopped with, liver with it. You could have yes, but it was. Uh, that was if you didn't put the sugar, but you would have it like you had a glass of whiskey or mm, just a as a snack. Okay. So there would always be this wonderful smell of yeast cake and these things on a Thursday wow. in the house. And um, and during the week, it was more your mum making breakfast. Well, during the week, mummy, mummy was always a very quick cook. She was very good at baking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you one of her recipes: her sponge cakes. We're all renowned for, known for her strudel. And her um, roast potatoes, chickens, chicken soup, etc. Um, but she would make more complicated things like profiteroles or ginger snaps. Whereas my grandmother's cooking was very homely, you know, okay. her cheesecakes were heavy, right. etc. So it's also maybe telling that your grandma was came from the more it's Ashkenaz different. background Absolutely. and your mum was more cosmopolitan. Yes, and uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, my grandmother used to stuff us with food you know Mm -hmm. we were like the I always remember the milk always we had what you call jersey milk I don't think it exists anymore but it's milk and then the half like maybe a a third no six a quarter of the milk the top would be pure cream Mm -hmm. and she'd be making you have it like Hated milk, hated milk after that. And she would make cream cheese and she would make, you know, all things like that. And everything from scratch. Everything from scratch. Whereas mummy, there was a division of labour. My father worked very hard. He was in the hospital all night, sometimes in the winter when it was snow, he'd sleep there. Mm. So my mother was great fun with, you know, five kids and she would be like one of us and she'd always be you know, organising things for us. And she was quite happy to leave the cooking to my grandmother. Um, You know, mummy would, you know, take us. She was in charge of us. You know, we do ice skating with her. We go to bed late. She'll take, you know, do things. She was 
uh, you know, we she, we went skiing when nobody had even heard what a ski wow. was. You know, she she was very sort of adventurous. So it sounds like and you had an full of fun, childhood. and she had a wonderful voice. She actually studied music, opera, and she and her mother and her brother, in fact, whenever we would have family gatherings, they would always sing. And my visions of mummy with a Hoover singing above the Hoover, etc. <laughs> et so it was yes, a very very lively family, and because we were five kids. We everybody always used to come to our house. I mean, I'll say we're five kids. We were five kids. We had dogs. We had cats. Wow. We had budgerigars. Wow. Um, it, you know, my grandmother. I always remember her sitting knitting, and the budgerigar. Well, what a budgerigar! Budgerigar is like a canary, a little bird okay. that you have in a cage. Would be sitting on the edge of her knitting needles. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, so. Okay, so... I wonder if it was easier for your mum to assume the more fun role, knowing that your grandmother was always there, kind of, if it's baking food yes. or if it's... Like, maybe you have more liberty to think about, oh, I'm going to make profiteroles today because yes, you don't have the I pressure did. of making exactly. dinner. Yes, yes, yeah. And, I mean, mummy, you know, I remember when, the first, when we first had... Bolognese, you know, no mm-hmm. one had ever had spaghetti bolognese, and she'd seen this recipe. And, so your uh, mum was a woman of the new world. Yes, she tried absolutely, and you know, so we went to all five of us went to school in Liverpool. My sister and I, we didn't go to a Jewish school, so we had our we went to a private school, mm-hmm. and we had our school life. Um, my other brother also went to a non-Jewish private school. He had a terrible time, what with um, being small and Jewish and from mm-hmm. um, in a school in a rough area yeah. of town. So after that, my parents sent my other two brothers to the Jewish school, the King David School, which had then started. Uh, when I started, went to school, it was very... Um, it was a new school and people weren't sure. Right. But there had always been a primary school in Liverpool. And um, so, okay, so we went to a non-Jewish school. We had non-Jewish friends, but that was only for the week. The weekend was, um, we were, you know, a Dati family. So it was B'nai Kiva. Yeah, we went to Cheda three times a week. Wow. Tuesday, Thursdays and Sundays. And also on a Shabbos, we'd have a Rebbe that would come round before we would go off to B'nai Kiva. So we were... So your Jewish identity was... Was always there. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Israel identity. I mean, we went to Israel in the 1960s, wow. very early, you know. Um, my parents took us. I remember them arriving at, at Ben Gurion, Lodder Airport then. It was like you came out and it was like a sukkah that you came into. And I remember my mother saying the smell of the orange blossom and my parents were mm. crying. And it, So we were always very... You had the Zionist dream yes, in yes, you. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, Karen. yeah. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned that you know your father's family was very ambitious in terms of academic yes. achievement. How did that affect you? And when you went off to university, True. right? Okay, because my father was a professional, there was no business as such for us to go into, mm-hmm. and we were—I must say—we were pushed by my father and my grandmother. Um, we, his motto was uh, work hard, play hard. Mm-hmm. So in the holidays, we had great holidays. We didn't even take jobs or anything. You know, we all we had to do was concentrate on our work. And I, you know, and then there was 
competition with the grandparents. I mean, this old grandparent mother of mine, Liverpool, mm-hmm. like Heda prize giving. There would be her and all her siblings sitting on the front row, wow. waiting to see which one's kid has got the most okay. prizes. You know, I hated it. Anyway, yeah, but out of my siblings, we were all successful. I became a barrister. Mm-hmm. My next sister. Where da- did you go to uni? I was in London at the law school there. Okay. Um, my sister. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Or I always you... wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. Um, which my father never really wanted me to be because he wanted all the he wanted everybody to do medicine. Mm-hmm. And even when I qualified and got a tenancy, um, those days it was hard for a woman to uh, become a barrister. I'm sure. He thought maybe I should do medicine and become <laughs> a coroner. Anyway, so I did law. My next sister down became um, a um, she became a dentist, but she's actually a maxillary facial surgeon. My next brother is at the moment he's um, professor of gastroenterology at Stanford University. Um, he's very well known in the states. My next brother down became a surgeon and or then specialized in radiology doing evasive surgery. And then my youngest brother became a dentist. So right, just definitely run-of-the-mill family. They're not overachievers <laughs> at all. <laughs> but we just... knew nothing else. We just had to uh, and get on with life. So having had parents who pushed you towards excellence, yes, is that something you continued with your kids? And is that something that you would advise parents to do? Or do you think that it, uh, you know, that that maybe a softer approach is uh, is a better one? Um, okay, so with my children, yes, we, everybody of my generation pushed their kids in London. Mm-hmm. It would be like you've gone on this bandwagon, they all had to, you know, do entrance exams, go to good schools. Or um, if you want to talk, I'll go back a bit by my kids. Yeah, but all four of them went to public school, UCS, which I think your dad went to my as dad well. My dad as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they all went on to university, one at Cambridge, Manchester, Birmingham. And yeah, if you want, I can tell you the eldest is a lawyer, though um, now he's given up law. He's he's uh, 45. The next one is an architect. Uh, The next one is um, did accountancy and computer studies. And the youngest is also a lawyer. So they all have a profession Mm -hmm. um, and and, uh, trained hard in their profession. And uh, like Mark, the eldest who's diversified, couldn't have done what he does now without being a lawyer. Okay. Um, so, yes. And did it come with costs? Did your kids push back? Did, did you Are they to... pushing their children? Yes. Yeah. That's why they're not living here at the moment. They're, it's more so than we did. I mean, I don't know if competition is greater mm-hmm. now, but it's... Um, I can't believe how these kids are pushed. Um, you know, they're only from 13 down to 18 months. Mm-hmm. But um, three, one, two, three, four of them are already in good public schools. Um, they, fa- they believe education is very um, important and they only want them to have the best. And they do more after-school activities than any of my kids did. Wow. Um, it's just non-stop. Um, but um, things have changed. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. So my life's. I don't know if you want to continue or if you want to tell me. Uh, I, I want to ask you yeah. about what it what it was like to be um, a woman pioneer in your field. You know, to be a, bar- a, a a woman female barrister and have young kids at home. How how did you manage that? Right. Okay. So I became a barrister when just before we were married, and three years later I had my first child. 
and um, I really didn't know how to tell my uh, your boss. boss, you know, my, my uh, head of chambers, that I was pregnant. Anyway, he took it quite well. I mean, I was the only woman there, and I was uh, my field of law was criminal law, so I was involved in quite a lot of heavy murder cases, etc. Um, and um, how did I take it? I said I went. I really worked up right to the end of my pregnancies, mm-hmm. um, you know, as long as I could. I mean, I remember being in court on a murder trial and the we were going to a coroner's inquest. It was a very grisly murder. Wow. And the, the judge looks at me and I don't know how he noticed because I had a flowing gown on, but he said, I don't want uh, Miss Marcus uh, to come to the inquest in wow. her state of health. <laughs> but yeah, so how did I do it? I could only do it because I had good help, and mm-hmm. I was only as good as the help I had. Um, unfortunately, um, I didn't have um, mummy. My mother was alive at that stage, but she and my father lived in Liverpool still, so I was reliant on um, help, you know, nannies, etc., mm-hmm. and on good, you know, one has good periods and bad periods, yeah. and, uh, it, you know, it, it, I sort of struggled through it. Um I went back to work when each kid was three months old wow. because, you know, I didn't want to lose my uh, tendency and yeah. I, you know, was sort of like, oh, yeah, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on reflection, I must have been the complete tiz how I did it. Um, but, you know, I used to, they drop at school or my husband would take them to school or we had rotors and I yeah. would go off to court all over London. I mean, the good thing was in those days you could drive and you could park. <laughs> so, I, you know, it wasn't too uh, bad um, getting there. But And then I would try and, you know, get home, you know, try and be, have my case. Yeah, get, you know, have my case put on first. Sometimes, you know, I'd be... But sad if the kids had a sports day and I couldn't get to mm-hmm. it or there were things. And I used to like, well, you know, work in horrible areas of London. And when I reached, well, you know, coming to Hampstead and reached the top of Winnington <laughs> Road, I suddenly thought, my gosh, I'm in another world, <laughs> you know. I know that drive down yeah. and you just feel, yeah. you feel at yeah. home. Yeah. I think being, you know, I think a lot of young mums today who work just feel torn to... It's, it almost feels like you can't be good at doing both things at the same time. If you have a good day at work and you feel on top of things, you, you'll miss bedtime or miss yeah. a first step or a first word or something funny. And if you, you know, you have a great day with your kid and you get tons of emails from your boss saying, you know, you need to deal with this, you feel... And I think we really, as a, you know, as a working mum, we feel this, we feel torn. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I used to have sleepless nights because the kids didn't sleep. And I think, God, the next morning I'm in a crown court. Mm -hmm. How the hell am I going to stay awake? Is it fair to my client that I'm, you know? know, I'm sure you always did a good job. Um, But it, it is, it is a big dilemma and I can only say when they were younger, it was easier mm-hmm. because they had a routine you could and also, you didn't think, have like after school activities. Homework wasn't as hard. There weren't so many school meetings. And when they're young, their needs are primarily physical, right? Absolutely. And so that is something you can you can check off. Well, yeah. Did they have a bath today? Did they have yes, dinner? Did yes. I give them yeah. a cuddle? Did yeah. they go to bed and it's done? When they get older, their needs are oh, they change. Oh, absolutely. You know, they used to come home from school and 
I don't know about you, they used to have tea and they used to like watch a bit of television and nobody really wanted to speak to me. And then they do their homework and like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, they would be ready to <laughs> speak to me when I was just about mm -hmm. dropping. Um, and what would you make them for dinner? Dinner? Uh, well, um, as I was saying earlier, I, I had two out of four were exceedingly fussy eaters. I have a fussy eater. You do? Yeah. Right. Okay. When they were young, I gave them, they always used to say, give them a taste of everything from avocado mm -hmm. to chopped liver and all the rest of it. Yeah. And they did. But somehow when they were about, these two, when they were about four, I'm talking about my second child and my third child, the two middle ones, they just stopped eating. I mean, Robert, the second one, all he would eat was cream cheese, mm. chopped fish balls, and they had to be mine. I used to love fish balls. Yeah, <laughs> right. They had to be mine. Um, wouldn't eat anybody else's. Um, maybe a bit of dry cereal and orange juice. So no vegetables, and chips. no, no meat. Chips would be the only thing he would eat. Mm -hmm. And that would be it. And... It it drove me mad because I'd never seen this. They'd always eaten so well and the others were eating. And, I and there's nothing you can do because the, the more pressure you put on the kid, exactly. the worse it gets. And I remember taking him to a pediatrician. You know, I was in tears. And he said, don't worry. So long as there's food in a cupboard, in the cupboard, a child will never starve. Mm -hmm. And And how we got him to eat, we went skiing and I had, my two single brothers with us and my husband and they decided right this is the time they're going to get Robert to eat and he was about seven and after every dinner I would take the other three up to bed and they would sit at the table in the dining room and he would be crying and they wouldn't leave him because they had time and everybody would be looking around and in the end he did start to eat mm. and I must say now he eats everything Absolutely everything, and is a fantastic cook. Well, there you go. So, to so all, all, all the mothers worried that their kids yeah. aren't eating it, will and pass. he's the tallest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did give them all vitamins. I must admit, I thought I've got to do something that yeah. help them. And then Jonathan, all he he all he would eat is peanut butter sandwiches. Wow, day in day out. And he went to when he went to Karim school. The yeah, you couldn't, you school, can't take peanuts. you can't take sandwiches or anything. Yeah, and the um, he used to take the meal and give it to his friend, or he used to hide under the table when they went up for a meal. And then in the end, one of the teachers told the headmaster, "This kid is falling asleep in the afternoon because he's, he's starving." Eating. Wow. So they relented. And he was allowed to bring his peanut butter sandwiches, but he was ostracized. He had to sit like at the other end yeah, of the room. Yeah, lunchtime at Kerem. I mean, it was such a, a main event. And the food was so yummy. I mean, <laughs> we, me and my siblings still reminisce really? about, about school dinners. Anyway, so eventually he did eat because my neighbor bribed him. For everything he ate, she would give him five pounds. Wow. So until she <laughs> ran out of money. So that started him eating when okay. he was about 10. Now, I never asked you how you met your husband. How did I meet my husband? Right. Okay, I was from Liverpool, as I said. My husband was from Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And we were both studying in London. What and was I, he studying? He was studying law as well. Um, actually, he had just graduated and he was doing his what you call articles, which you know, apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And I was about going to do my uh, final exams and I was staying with my grandparents so that I could be looked after. This was in London. 
And I had a phone call from a girl who used to live down the road in Liverpool. And she said, oh, my dad just met your dad in the park. And he says, you've moved to London. Would you like to come round um, for coffee tomorrow night? I'm having some friends. So I said, oh, I'm really sorry. I can't. Um, I've got exams next week, but I'll get in touch. And in those days, the phone used there just used to be one phone in the uh, apartment of my grandparents, and it was in the hall. And my grandmother comes out the kitchen and said, "Did I hear you refuse an invitation?" I said, "Yes, I don't. You know, I don't really know her well, and I don't know anybody she's inviting." And my grandmother said, "You can't refuse an invitation. You've been stuck in that library for weeks on end. You're going. Here's some money." Go down the road, have your hair done, and go. Wow. So I went, and I knew absolutely nobody in the room, and I was sitting next to Graham, and then we realised he was at, um, his office was next to my college, and he invited me out for lunch, and then... The rest, uh, was, it, history. The rest was history. Yeah. Where did you go for lunch? Well, it used to be a place called Oodles in uh, Hoburn, which was like this organic uh, vegetarian restaurant. <laughs> and actually, I was very annoyed with him because he turned up with two other guys. Oh, and I no. thought, what on earth is he coming for? <laughs> he, had a, and he said, I couldn't tell them not to come because they were walking to the same okay, place. Okay, there was a work-lunch so work break. It was like a lunch with three boys, yeah. But, okay, uh, yeah. but it was clear which one you were you were going out with. Yes, yeah. And Do you think the fact that you were both in London but from outside of London, did that kind of bring you together a yes, little bit? Yes, I think so. It also turned out, actually it was very funny because when I went back to college after having lunch with him, I would always sit in law school, you sat on these long benches and there would be me, another Jewish girl and two other guys Jewish mm-hmm. guys, and we'd always sit together. And so one of them says, "Oh, you." He was always teasing. He said, "Oh, you look, you look happy. Where have you been? Why didn't you come for lunch with us?" So I said, "I, I went out for lunch. Who'd you go out with?" And he was persisting, persisting. So then I gave him the name. He said, "What do you mean? That's my friend. He never said he would come out with you." <laughs> you know, telling people, I think those kinds of things. Once you tell someone yeah. that it's out, and so like I remember when I started dating my husband, we were so conscious to keep it it wasn't the idea wasn't to keep it a secret but you know once you tell people it's totally out so we kept it to ourselves I mean it not not for that long just a few weeks but you know that that time that you can kind of enjoy the not having people know um and so could you so you're both lawyers with four young boys living in London what marriage advice can you give for people that are in that stage of life or marriage advice now Okay, well, I think then it's the same as now. I do think marriage is a compromise. Mm-hmm. You're two people, different, you're not, you know, who have their own ideas, who are independent, especially at work, and um, you know, you're living together. And you have my husband always, you know, obviously you're in love, but you, it, you know, you have to live in the real world. Yeah. And you really work as a team. And especially when you're working, both working, when you've got kids, you've got to be organised and, um, you know, share responsibilities. I must say, he worked very hard. The only, If it wasn't for Shabbos, I wouldn't have seen him. Mm. Um, and I used to hate Sundays because he would go to the office on Sunday wow. and I'd have like, 
no uh, help because that was my girl's day off. Yeah, and so I remember just you and the kids. It's just me and the kids. And I remember sitting in the park with them and schlepping them to parties and football matches. And then, you know, then if one had fallen over. So in the end, I used to say, just work at home. So at least I've got you in case of mm-hmm. an emergency. Yeah. But I guess we only got where we did because he worked very hard. I worked. We had a happy family life. Um, I I have omitted to say that actually my mother died very young. She was 56. I was married and my sister was married, but I had three and one brother was. But I had two single brothers mm-hmm. studying in London and they were always part of my extended family. Right, they you were took always, them in. Yeah, I mean, my mother's last wish was that my father bought them property near me wow so they would always be with me friday night they'd be with shabbos yontuf and my father who lived in liverpool commuted he refused to leave although all five children none of us lived there and he used to come to london practically every weekend other than when he was in israel Mm because my sister lived here or he would go off to america so i always was cooking for 10 people you know that was nothing so you were a hard-working barrister, a mum to four young kids. You basically took care of your whole family after after your mum yeah. passed away. And you also had time uh, to have a strong community life and, you know, volunteer and assume roles within the community. Yes, I was. Um, more so when they were older. Yeah, you had um, a bit more time. I had a bit more time. Though, I mean, I was on the board of deputies for like six years. And that was... I didn't particularly like it, but I got involved, and that was the subject. Why didn't you like it? It's a, too much of a talking shop, and the same people talking want to hear their own voices. Okay, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, and if you wanted to do anything interesting, it meant it was during the week in the evenings, and you know I didn't want to give up my time in the evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, I got very involved in Emuna because my aunts were involved. So what is Emuna? Emuna, well, it's an Israeli organisation that looks after underprivileged children. We have homes here, daycare centres, um, uh, counselling centres up and down the country. I mean, at the moment... The one in Stayrot is the busiest counselling centre. The kids that are in our homes are all from deprived families, um, single families, parents on drugs, um, unable to cope with kids. Um, horrendous stories. Look, there's many um, types of organisations yeah. here. In England, this is one, maybe one of the biggest ones. And as I say, uh, my aunt got me into it. And um, yeah, we're a fundraising organization and I was the dinner chairman for 10 years and I've always been involved and been a trustee. Um, So I've done that. I helped a bit with World Jewish Relief, which we used to collect clothes and send them off to East Europe. I actually have a very funny story about you and World Jewish Relief. I didn't didn't tell you this. Yeah. So many, many years ago, I went with my mum yeah. to one of these packing yes, days. Yes, yes, yeah. So basically, we, you're in some warehouse somewhere. That's correct, yeah, or cold and warehouse. You're very cold, <laughs> yeah. and you unpack tons and tons of people's clothes that they've donated, yes. and then you have to repack it and sort it, right? Men's shirts, yeah. men's jumpers, Absolutely. kids' yeah, tights, yeah. whatever. And you were there. It must have been like women from the community. Yeah. I don't know. Who, I think I can't, yeah. And I just remember you unpacking a suitcase of clothes yeah. and you put it all and the the annoying thing is that people when they donate clothes they just you know shove Sorry. them in a bag yeah. and you said wow I've just unpacked the nicest nicely 
the most nicely packed suitcase of shirts and each one was folded so nicely yeah. and only when I got to the bottom of the suitcase did I realize it was my own suitcase <laughs> and I thought wow this lady <laughs> she knows what she's it. doing um so I thought that was a, oh, a it's yeah, funny, funny that you mentioned well just yeah. relief because I remember that from many many years ago oh, lovely. Uh, and I guess that's a small reminder to all of us who whenever we you know go through our closets and donate clothes, fold them nicely, organize them nicely because someone is on the receiving end and, and I'm sure it's more appreciated when Absolutely. they're Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, when I they're used to take nicely. clothes home and hand them a wash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, that, but then my life was my children's lives, you know, mm-hmm. they're taking them to all their various activities, going up and down the country, yeah. visiting them at university, going away together. And now you have uh, grandkids. And now I have blessed with grandkids, and yes. And w- what do you love doing for them what do I love doing or what do you love cooking for them well funny enough they all love cooking so um so when they come to me they all like making biscuits Mm -hmm. so uh we make biscuits and I've got like cutouts for different shapes like the gingerbread man or actually I'm not home this time but we have all these chanukia and dreidels and things uh yeah they all love making biscuits nobody likes clearing up afterwards of course um my eldest granddaughter like I was home a few weeks ago and they were all on half term and so I was able to do each day I had a different child to do something I've got 11 grandchildren and uh, some I took to the theatre, others I took to golf or ice skating. And her wow. request was, could she come round and do baking with me? Wow. And I thought, well, lovely, why not? Okay, it's easy. And then she rang up and said, can I bring my two friends with me? <laughs> so we landed up having a cooking a cookery class and we made her favourite things, uh, my recipes. Um, she loves meringues, so we made meringues, so we mm. made cookies. And we made sponge cake, which is like my mother's tried and tested recipe, which never fails. <laughs> and um, you can do a lot with it. And um, yeah, um, but I, on reflection, I look back at the food that I ate as a child. And it wasn't really healthy food, as I say. Mm-hmm. There was loads of cream and there was fried fish and uh, lots of eggs, you know, and... Um, it, it, everything was homemade. Yeah. Everything was very tasty. And then graduate to my children's meals. And what do they like? Well, they liked chips and they liked um, meat, steaks, and mm-hmm. they liked bolognese. Not, they didn't really like fish. They never liked vegetables or anything like yeah. that. They liked, yes, they liked meringues. They liked my sponge cake. They liked jelly ice cream. Um, there was a time, I don't know if you remember, in the I think it was the early 90s when there was something called mad cow's disease. Yes, yes. So we, weren't, we, we were told not to eat meat. Well, this, you know, my kids went crazy. The boys, they can't have meat. They're eating uh, fish or chicken. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wouldn't believe me. And I said, no, we're not eating it. It's, you know, the government says you shouldn't, etc. So I remember my husband and I went away. And we came back, and there was a big note on my freezer, change of regime. <gasps> and they had been to the local butcher and stocked <laughs> it up with steaks, steaks, steaks. Wow. Um, in fact, in that period, my, whenever my father used to go to Israel, he used to come back with, with uh, meat. meat. <laughs> yeah. So that was them. Then I look at my grandchildren, 
and their diet is completely different. I mean, they're okay. They lo they love sh everything that's schnitzels mm -hmm. or pizzas or fish fingers, um, and it's uh, everything's based with pasta, pasta yeah. with everything, pizzas. But then they they will eat sushi. Whereas, you know, well, that never existed yeah. in my kids' day. And they are much more adventurous. And I must say, they eat loads of vegetables. Whereas I was telling you before, my kids didn't. These kids will eat loads of vegetables and loads of fruit. That's good. So it's, I have seen a progression, the change of diet. I mean, they don't, nobody really likes milk. They'll have it on their cereals. Yeah. But no one will... Um, cream cheese or you know chopped herring chopped liver they wouldn't touch anything right. like that which is something yeah, look, we as, as time on. changes the way we eat changes drastically yeah. and I think we're not even sure of what's right or what's wrong because you mentioned the diet that you grew up on that wasn't particularly healthy but actually none of it was processed it was all totally made oh, from scratch absolutely you, you you wouldn't eat anything that wasn't locally sourced no um and maybe that's a, a healthier yes. way of living, even though there were less salads or... Yeah, and now they're coming back to saying that eggs are healthy. Yeah. Whereas at one time... Well, in Israel, yeah. eggs are such a staple. Yeah, yeah, but at one time they were saying you shouldn't have too many eggs because yeah, of cholesterol. cholesterol. Um, so, yeah, things So everything changed. in moderation, basically. Absolutely, I believe in that, definitely. And, um, you know, so much more you can buy. Yeah. You know, it... it you know, my daughter-in-laws have it very easy living in London. They can always get a takeaway and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the kids are happy to eat it. Do I you think they'd have that. you living with them and you have your own kitchen? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you may think that I know everything. I don't think they think I know anything at all. Oh, no. Life has changed so much. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I think we, we are almost out I'm of sure. time, but I wanted to ask you uh, yeah. to bring a recipe, something that tells your story, your family's story, something that you think that our listeners could try at home and would like to try. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to just give you the tried and tested recipe for sponge cake, okay. which my mother uh, used to use, and you could do quite a lot with it, and it just reminds, the smell reminds me of... Afternoon tea on Shabbos, mm -hmm. we always used to have. It reminds me of when you're not well, at least have a, bit, a little bit of sponge oh. cake. And um, something that my grandkids uh, make with me, it's like, you know, you can make it as a big cake or as a fairy cake. So it's very simple. Um, you need four eggs mm -hmm. and you beat them up for a long time till they're really, really fluffy and very, very pale. Mm -hmm. Then you but you don't separate the eggs. Don't separate it just, but really beat them so that you know they are. You can lots of airs in them. Yeah. Um, then add slowly 140 grams of caster sugar. Okay. Now, caster sugar is hard to get here, but it's uh, like the very fine. Yeah, it's not, a bit like icing sugar. Not, not the icing sugar. Okay. It's between granulated between sugar and, and yeah. All right. So maybe our Israeli you, listeners should. Just pick either granulated or icing sugar. Well, probably, gran you do see it around. Granulated sugar, then put it in a Magimix and mm. make it a little bit finer. Okay. So add that in slowly, very slowly. And obviously, when you're adding it, your eggs are going to fall. Right. And then, you, after that, you add... 85 grams of self-raising flour. Mm -hmm. I don't know what self... Is, do you distinguish yeah. it? Right, self-raising flour... Very slowly, um, just add it slowly, but do not overbeat. Just okay. put it in and don't 85 overbeat. Eighty-five grams—that's very little amount of. Well, flour. it's in it's four eggs. It's four. It's 
basically it's four, three, two. Okay. You understand? So it's um, four. I do, I do it in ounces. So it's four eggs, three ounces of sugar, two ounces of flour. Okay. Okay. And um, then put it in a tin. Put no it, oil? No oil, nothing else. No, that's it. Put it in the tin, put it in the oven at uh, 180 um, centigrade, probably for, check it after 15 minutes, put a, you know, a screw yeah, in yeah, it yeah. and see if it's finished and maybe 15 to 20 minutes and that's it. Wow. Now, a variation on that is if before you put it in the oven, you can put... Um, put half of the mixture in a tin and then put cinnamon and sugar on the first layer, on layer and then add the second layer and then sprinkle again with cinnamon and sugar. Yeah. Um, and then the same. And it's really nice to be eat fresh. Um, also, if you just do it plain, you can beat up cream and put it on top. Um, maybe cut the cake in half because it'd be too deep. Mm-hmm. And just put cream. And in the middle. No, no, just make it like half a cake. Okay. And on top of each one, so you've got like two cakes, um, put cream, beat, it up, beat up cream, a little bit of sugar in it, and put some strawberries or Yum. raspberries on top. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well, but now, now it's nice strawberry season, season in Israel, so <laughs> okay. maybe I'll try this cake for Shabbat. Sounds okay. super... Uh, uh, you can make it as well just by um, putting apples at the bottom, sort of cook the apples mm. a bit, then put, put the mixture on top. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's without oil. No oil, no. Okay, no. I'm, I'm definitely going to try this. <laughs> okay, so Michelle, thank you for sharing Pleasure, your you story and, and your recipe and all of this with us. I've had uh, I've had a great time. Thank you for um, having me. And yeah, I hope you'll come again. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Kola Saftot. From Kube to Knedelach and everything in between. With Sabrina Shantz. All our shows and podcasts available online on our website and on all podcast platforms. Search Audioversity 